This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, I, I am very excited. Someone is back with us who blew my mind back in January when she was first on this show. Uh, Seven Bremner is got to be one of the most knowledgeable alchemists that I have ever encountered. I'm very careful about people I have on this show regarding alchemy because so many, so much of it is just bunk. There are a few real alchemists in the world. I'm privileged to know two of them, Prince Stash Rolla, who has been on the show, and Seven Bremner, who is also the real deal. Uh, her new book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, is an absolutely a work of genius. And I know she's probably going to be embarrassed hearing me say that, but it's true. I'm going to try my best to do this justice today. And it's going to be hard because uh, this is an exceptional person. I, and as I say, I know very enough about alchemy to know when I'm I'm face to face with the real deal. And you're looking at the real deal right now. Seven Bremner was on Dreamland on um, January the 23rd of this year. And she has come back with an extraordinary new book, uh, The Marriage of uh, Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, which is basically a book about these energies and how they fit in, how they project into the world. And in the third half part of the show, the last half hour, we're going to get into the, uh, the, the some of the material about projecting the astral body, opening the doors to the imaginal realm and creating in the imaginal realm. Seven is an incredibly accomplished artist that I think in my opinion, the most accomplished alchemical artist working in the world today and self-taught. She just sat down and taught herself how to paint. I, I'm just in awe. Okay, we're going to start with an invocation. This invocation was given to me by my wife, Anne, about six months ago, and we use it every day in the sensing exercise, which we do at one o'clock on... Um, on uh, every afternoon at one o'clock Pacific time. And you're always welcome to join. If, you, if you're interested, just write Whitley at Strieber.com and it's free. Um, and you can come in and see if it's for you. And if it is, you can just stay with us. We're there every day, a group of us. Okay, here's the invocation. We ask the light to open the doors of our hearts and the dark to open the doors of our minds that we may receive richness of being from the light and richness of knowledge from the dark. We ask those wiser than us to protect us and help us to see, balance, and use what is given to us. And today, we are going to be talking about the light and the dark in some very deep and complex ways. I'd like to begin, Seven, by asking you if you can uh, discuss the hidden power of the arts in general, because I'll give you an example. It's not mentioned in your book, but another of his paintings is uh, Franz Stuck, 
uh, he will talk in a few minutes about a painting of his called Sin. But to give folks the an idea of just how powerful art can be, and I'm including in this uh, verbal as well as visual art, all forms of art. Franz Stuck painted something called uh, The Wild Hunt in 1898, which hangs in to this day in the State Museum of Art in Munich. This painting was seen by Adolf Hitler and it was inspired, it inspired Adolf Hitler as the painting of the painting of Wotan racing through the world in, in, a, in a frenzy of destruction. And he modeled himself on the painting. He changed his look. That brush mustache, the Rotbrems, it's called, the little mustache that he had, and his hair uh, uh, parted in a certain way that was such a distinctive thing. If you look at that painting, you see it. He modeled himself on Wotan in the act of ultimate destruction and then enacted this in the world with the result that over a hundred million lives were lost from that. Now, you think art isn't relevant? Doesn't matter, it's just something on the wall. Seven, can you give us some ideas about the meaning, the power of art? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Very humbling, thank you. Um, yeah, the power of art, I think, is really, it lies in the image and the symbol and the ability of images to speak to a part of us that's not rational. Um, that is much deeper than the rational mind and that doesn't need to understand things in words necessarily. And that calls upon the mythic within us that incites the mythic narrative within us like it did for Hitler in your example. And what a wonderful and terrible example yeah. um, of the power of art to affect people on a deep level. And there's something about imagery you know, being able to create the illusion of another world within an image, to create something from nothing, to create something that wasn't there before through a painting or a piece of art. And the way that that stimulates the imagination in other people and awakens things within them uh, for better or worse. And hopefully if the art is coming from a place of inner realization, it has the power to uplift and enlighten people and guide them um, towards a deeper truth within themselves. And yet there's also the need for art to play a sort of cathartic role for artists, you know, to express the darkness and express the violence that's within them in a way that's um, more constructive than actually living that out in real life. So there, that's what that uh, Stuck painting makes me think of. There's a painting in Vienna that you mentioned. I, I just saw it face to face a few months ago. I was in Vienna. It's called, it's by Gustav Klimt, and it's called, I believe, Hope One. Mm. Hope, yeah. Uh, it is a painting of a, of a beautiful painting of a pregnant woman 
on one side and death on the other. Can you tell us a little bit about the power of a painting like that when you as a woman see it? Hmm. Hold on, I'm just gonna get it in front of me so I can speak a little more. Sure, no hurry, we'll, we'll wait. Go ahead and get yeah. it right in front of you. All right. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition, very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you, unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. This one, yeah, this one has such a beautiful range of imagery, you know, with these sort of ghostly, ghastly faces in the background and this dark background. And then this beautiful, gorgeous pregnant woman with flowing hair and it looks like water kind of flowing down next to her. And um, life and death are just very much portrayed in the balance here. And I always think of, um, birth and death as pretty much happening at the same time you know when new life comes into the world there is a certain death that happens in that moment as well and when we die that's also a moment of birth and transformation and moving into a new phase of our existence um so i think when i look at this painting that's what it makes me think of is that um, union of life and death together in one and the beauty of that I think the exactly that the link between birth and death, which you discuss in the book, um, is very important energetically, uh, and and a little, uh, I, it's almost a prayer. It's an invocation. Uh, receive the richness of being from the light, and the richness of knowledge from the dark. And knowledge 
is not knowledge always in some way knowledge of death? Uh, all knowledge, because knowledge is about endings. It's about finding something final. You know, we we, we look in 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 uh, um, in physics constantly for the theory of everything, and I've thought maybe we'll find the theory of everything on the day the world ends. <laughs> so, uh, when you work. And I think you're. You, I don't think you do actual alch alchemical transformations in, in a in a in a in a laboratory, do you? You work basically with your paintings. Yeah, I apply the alchemical principles through the creative process. Yeah. Yeah, but I have you know studied a little bit of the practical alchemy. I just decided at a certain point that that wasn't necessarily for me at this point in my life. Yeah, well, I understand that. Stashtarola is the same way. He he works in, um, he does his alchemy in the mind. And folks, you should understand this. If This is really powerful stuff, but it doesn't, you don't need to get a lab and have retorts and things. And if you were me, of course, it would all explode. But, uh, and that's liable to happen to practically anybody, goodness knows. And it happened to plenty of alchemists in the past. It was debased by alchemy, just to go a little history, was debased by a, um, a false claim that it was possible to turn lead into gold using these transformations, physical lead into physical gold. And a lot of arist aristocrats and royals in Europe in the, I guess, 17th and perhaps into the 18th century were sold a bill of goods by fake alchemists who pretended that they would be able to do this. Can you talk a little bit about the history of alchemy and, and where it comes from? Because it goes back much farther, doesn't it? All the way to ancient Egypt. It does. It goes back all the way to ancient Egypt and arguably to the beginning of humans working with fire and being able to transmute material. And if we think about agriculture, you can see that in an alchemical sense. Um, transmuting the earth and generating things out of the darkness of the earth. So, but alchemy as an art does go back to ancient Egypt and then it developed over the centuries um, through the ancient Greeks and the Arabic alchemists and then into the Renaissance and um, through the Middle Ages as well. And, you know, it's been a continuous line from ancient times and it's gone through many different transformations. And most recently it kind of went into um, more of a spiritual conception of what alchemy is. And that happened in the 19th century um, where alchemy was seen less as a material art and just solely something that happens on the spiritual level or metaphorical level. Um, but truly it's always been both and it still is both. And there's plenty of practicing alchemists today that work in the laboratory um, and I think to me, the true art of alchemy is the ability to experience it um, both internally and externally in some form. So whether that's in a laboratory that you're watching transmutations of different minerals or plant materials um, and reflecting that inwardly, having that experienced inwardly as well as you're watching these things unfold within your retort or if you're doing this in your art studio, or perhaps you're just working with the physical body 
and transmutations within the physical body. And that's sort of like Taoist alchemy, um, working with the energy of the body as well. You do that also, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Where did you, where did alchemy, how did alchemy come into your life? Um, well, in my early 20s, I was studying polarity therapy, which is a hands-on modality, healing modality that works with a person's life force energy, what we would call prana or chi, and using both hands as a positive and negative um, charge, essentially, to guide that energy and open up blockages. And a lot of it is based in hermetic principles. And um, that was sort of my first introduction to hermetic ideas and also my first introduction to alchemy through my teacher, um, Dr. Leslie Korn. And she had written a book uh, called Somatic Empathy, just a little book, but um, there's a section in there about the caduceus of Hermes and uh, a picture um, of Mercurius. And you might be familiar with it. It's an old engraving where Mercurius is standing there nude upon um, a winged sphere, I think, and he's holding two caduceuses in each hand. And then there's two sort of challenging alchemist figures coming towards him. Um, but I saw this image and it triggered something in me. It was like a memory or just a, a deep feeling of familiarity with the image and also an intense burning curiosity to understand uh, where it came from and what it meant. And that's that was a pretty pivotal moment in my exploration of alchemy. And from there, things just kind of fell into place. Like people would give me books or I would come into information. Um, and I started first reading um, Carl Jung's take on alchemy from a psychological perspective. So his books, Psychology and Alchemy and Alchemical Studies were really important in the beginning. And later on, Mysterium Conjunctionis. Um, and from there, I became interested in you know, reading actual alchemical texts and especially the ones with um, illustrations, you know, like Michael, Michael Myers, Adelanta Fugians is a favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great book. And the illustrations are very powerful. Yeah. Why are they so powerful? Because if you look at them, in fact, if I look at your work, uh, it, it intellectually, in my mind, it makes no sense. Where does it make sense? Why do I want so badly to look at this stuff? And why did it change me? I think because it is irrational and because it doesn't make sense, it creates a question within us because the rational mind wants to understand, you know, wants there to be a story, a narrative. And yeah. maybe you can tease one out, um, but it can always change. And that's, I think, the beauty of alchemical art is that these symbols are multivalent. They're not necessarily fixed. Um, and they can mean one thing and they can also mean another thing or many things. So if you look at an alchemical image, there's any number of interpretations that you can make. Um, and yet usually when they're accompanied by alchemical text or alchemical recipes, um, that kind of gives you the context for what the image means. But usually when you read that text, it has very little to do with the image. And so then you're left even more confused because <laughs> you expect exactly. the text to explain the image and it really doesn't. Um, my, uh, my wife, you know, I wish I had understood the depths of my wife's mastery when she was alive. 
but only after she died and returned with such extraordinary material did I understand, and, I, and I, as I looked back across her life, I realized that this mastery had been there for a long time. And one of the things she said is, I've said it on this show before, but it cannot be said enough. And it's germane to precisely what you're saying, because it's about energy. It is the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. And this is the essence of the alchemical energy, I think, that it, it doesn't it can't be figured out. It can't be rationalized. It has to be absorbed in another way. And um, that is to say, we have to learn how to get the richness of knowledge from the dark that is within us and without us. And this is the very essence of the alchemical journey. Speaking of journeys, we're going to take a little break for the free side of the show, and we'll be right back. My new book, Them, has now been out since March of 2023. I would like to thank everyone for the wonderful reception. Those who have read it, who have posted thoughtful reviews on Amazon, those who have listened. It's an important book for me, and also... Over the months, it has become a very strange book because if you listen to the Oversight Committee UAP hearings, you will hear David Grush saying things that almost sound like they were taken right out of the second part of them. And I thought to myself, how did I do that? And the answer is, I have no idea. But the book is really very prophetic. And I think you should read it if you hadn't done so. And that's what this is all about. Read it and listen to it. It's really worth your time. Jacques Vallée certainly thought so. Mitch Horowitz thought so. Jeff Kripal thought so. Leslie Kane, Diana Pasolka, and all of the others who gave it blurbs thought so. And so do an awful lot of people who have reviewed it. So pick up a copy today. Go to Amazon and get a copy. Go to Audible and get the audio book. Listen to them. Read them. It's a whole new vision of how we should think about the close encounter experience. And this is getting more and more important over time. More and more important. Them. I saw the future when I was writing that book. Didn't know I would, but I did. You can read it now and see for yourself. My new book, Jesus A New Vision, is not a Christian book. It is not an anti-Christian book either. Very much not an anti-Christian book. It is new, genuinely new. A look at Jesus in his life and what happened afterwards his resurrection, for the Shroud of Turin is no medieval forgery. It goes all the way back and it does record an extraordinary event that appears to have been a body transforming into a form of coherent light. The science is very strong at this point. And yet, how could that be? What an extraordinary mystery. 
The life of Jesus is mysterious indeed, but the greater part of the mystery is about us. How is it that a human body could transform in that way? Who accomplished it? Why did it happen? What does it mean to you and me about our lives now? Jesus, a new vision, a new window into a very old way of looking at the truth. A way of finding ourselves, perhaps, that we lost a long time ago, but can recover. Jesus and New Vision is available in Kindle format, as a paperback, in audiobook format on Audible and Apple, and as a Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Do go and get it today. We're talking to Seven Bremner. Her website, marlena7bremner.com. And I urge you to go there. And if you do nothing else, simply sit and let the paintings just wash over you one after another in the and on the splash page of this magnificent website. Uh, it is very powerful stuff. And especially if you can let go of, what does that mean? What is this? What is that? Just let it go. And all of a sudden, something real and quite new comes to you from those paintings. I'm doing it as I'm talking, and that's why I'm so concentrated, because I'm letting this, these brilliant works of art just kind of take me wherever they want to. Oh, gosh, this is fun. I'm back now. I got completely absorbed in your website. Merlina7Bremner.com. Don't miss it. Uh, and the books... Uh, the Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy uh, is uh, the, the newest one, and it is very, very powerful stuff because the interesting thing is there is a place for the intellect in all of this. And, and, and can you tell us how the intellect is used? Because this is it's a book of the a work of the mind. It's an intellectual book. How does the intellect come into alchemy? Well, alchemy I see as an art of union. And it's the union between the rational and the irrational, the conscious and the unconscious, the outer and the inner. So while we can say, you know, alchemical images and writing works upon the unconscious or that deeper part of us, the darkness within us, uh, we do need that intellectual, rational part of ourselves to kind of put the pieces together and to integrate them. So we need to be able to go into those nonlinear states of mind, um, intuitive, irrational kind of places to be able to absorb uh, what alchemy has to teach us. But then in order to make sense of it and to integrate it into our lives, that's where the intellect comes in. And in alchemy, 
these two sides of our being were often expressed as the king and the queen, or soul and luna, the sun and the moon, or sulfur and mercury. So this sort of active part of ourselves, the rational, the outer, um, egoic side of ourselves, perhaps even, and then the unconscious, deeper uh, part of ourselves that relies more on symbols and intuition and dreams. And um, both of these are completely necessary to our being. And in our modern culture, there's so much more of an emphasis on the external, on the conscious, on the rational. And um, the world of the imagination and of dreams and the inner world is sort of still you know, looked down upon in a certain way as being unreal or unreliable and not that important, you know. Um, there aren't that many people that actually pay attention to their dreams, for instance, you know. It's just sort of seen as this like jumble of images that we came across the day before, recombined and not that important. Um, so I think the emphasis in this book is contacting that unconscious part of ourselves or the lunar part of ourselves um, that sees the world in a symbolic way because that's what's lacking in this in this time period. You know, there's a very interesting book out called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McKittrick. Uh, it's, he is a neurologist. And the thesis of this book is that the emissary, that is to say, the left brain, has taken over the role of the master, the right brain. And the book is titled after a story of, or a parable, I should say, by Friedrich Nietzsche. The master is the um, rules a beautiful kingdom that's in a state of wonderful balance. And he gradually increases the borders of his kingdom. That is to say, he brings more and more knowledge into the balance of the mind. The emissary is sent out into the edges of the kingdom because it's now so big that the master can't control it all from, from his, his capital. And uh, the emissary decides that he actually is better than the master and that he decides to control the kingdom instead. And his control over the kingdom is very rigid. It is very demanding, very disciplined, very unyielding, uh, very logical. And he gradually, he assembles an army and he overcomes the master completely and pushes the master aside. And the result is the whole kingdom collapses. Right now, in the world, our kingdom, you're, you're in, in it now, in fact, in this heat zone. Uh, the planet's energies are disrupted profoundly, and they are disrupted by the actions of the emissary in the world, making more and more material, runaway ego. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do, Seven? <laughs> Where, where do we go from here? Tell us a little bit about the master, because I know you know the master very well. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, especially regarding AI and in just the state of the world in general and this sort of 
eagerness and runaway train that we seem to be on. Um, you know, the need to know what's going to happen, the need to find out, and the inability to just slow down and sit with what is and to contemplate and to consider things. I think we've really lost that, especially in our, our leadership. Um, and I think it's so crucial, especially with such powerful technology as AI, you know, to be able to slow down and ask ourselves, like, you know, why are we doing this? And what are we hoping to get out of this? And, you know, maybe we could try to see where this is going to go in five to 10 years. And um, just consider that and just, you know, why, why such a hurry? You know, what's the rush? But I also feel like um, this time period that we're in is very much like the first stage of the alchemical opus, the Nigredo, which is the blackening. <laughs> My next question was going to be about the Negredo, but you've gotten there already. Go ahead. Yeah. And so we're in this sort of um, place of very intense Saturnian pressure and heat. You know, the fire of calcination, the fire of the crucible is an when aspect. When you say Saturnian, exactly what do you mean? Relating to the planet Saturn specifically. So Saturn is traditionally thought of as being cold and dry and um, embodied by the, the god Saturn or Cronus in Greek mythology. And so this kind of stern father, and if you know the mythology of Saturn, he, um, there's a prophecy that one of his children will overthrow him and take over the throne. So he decides he's gonna devour each one of his children as they're born. And uh, this sort of fear-based mindset is very Saturnian and very much related to the Negredo. And um, what happens, of course, is uh, his wife, Hera, um, hides the final child, who is Zeus or Jupiter. And then Jupiter comes back and avenges um, his siblings and, you know, is able to cause Zeus to vomit up the siblings. And anyway, um, Saturn relates to this idea of structure and limitation and constriction and pressure and also like it can relate to depression and melancholy and fear anxiety um, hopelessness and in alchemy this period the nicredo which is defined by these dark moods um, is the beginning of the work and even though it relates to death it's the beginning now that is so interesting because we are looking at, we're face to face with the Negredo in mm -hmm. the world now, and not just in the United States, but all over the world. But in the United States, it's reflected in things like our very nihilistic pol political situation. We have a lot of nihilism and death-related symbolism and imagery in, in politics and sort of the two extremes make the loudest noise. One of them uh, wanting to completely break down the, the, the borders of sexuality. The other one wanting to build a, a wall in, in the same place. And they're in conflict with each other. And this conflict is going to lead to chaos, political chaos, but its essence 
is, and I know that will happen because it's so powerful because its essence is sexual energy. And this is a, the great energy of the universe. When you make love, it's, there's a reason that the French call the climax, the little death. And that gets back to Klimt's painting, death and birth all together. And it explains, I think very clearly, the inner meaning of the Negredo. But how do we live through what we're going to be facing? Where do we, the, those who are adept, find the energy we need now? I think slowing down, slowing down, creating space, allowing a deeper wisdom to fill that space. And the Negredo is really part of that process. You know, it, it is that difficulty in our lives that breaks us down and humbles us to where we have nothing left to do but just surrender. And in that surrender, a space opens up and then a sort of grace can enter and fill you. And then there's a renewal and a regeneration of energy. And when I think about the extremes of the polarities that our political system is um, being pulled to right now and alchemical images of like two dogs or two lions fighting or, you know, uh, yeah, usually there's two animals that are fighting, right? And they generally end up devouring each other. And even though they're both being devoured, there's a great medicine that issues forth from this process. And I think that's kind of where we're at as a culture. We need to be able to um, bring these opposites together. And sometimes there's a sort of violence that is a part of that in alchemical imagery. And I don't know what that means on a collective level, but um, I think the conflict will come to a head and the solution will come forth from that. But as so long as we are alienating the other and generally as a culture and as a people um, accepting that, you know, it's okay to otherize people and to say, that's the enemy. Those are the bad people. We're on the good side. We know what's right. We're not gonna figure it out. We're not gonna figure it out. We're going to take another little break right now. And when we come back, Seven is going to figure it out. So get ready. <laughs> we'll be right back. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface, among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. B. 
Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them. Available as an audiobook on audible.com, Apple Books, and Amazon. Available as a hardcover and paperback everywhere. Available as a Kindle on Amazon.com. And you can go to unknowncountry.com and order all of my books. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth about the close encounter experience? You have never heard any of this before. Them. This is a brief excerpt from an interview with two contactees who had an 11-day close encounter experience and are now willing to speak about it, really, for the first time. To hear their whole interview and many others, subscribe to unknowncountry.com. Here's the excerpt. Did you see the man's face? Yes. Uh, actually, that one is very clear to me. It was kind of longish, and uh, he didn't look... He didn't look completely human, but he, because he had very, very thin hair, almost non-existent, but he was young, I believe that it was kind of blonde, and he was very tall, like six, at least six feet, and he was so thin that he looked kind of strange. And what happened then? Well, he wanted me to to go with him or to stay with him. He wanted me to stay with him on the ship. And I'd been married for six months, and I wasn't about to go running off to stay on the ship. Now, surely you want more. You must want more. And there is more, not only this contactee interview, but many others, many of them just as extraordinary on unknowncountry.com, plus everything else that we offer, my audiobooks, the meditations, the talks on the key, William Henry's wonderful revelation show and its entire run, Ann Strieber's brilliant and magical mysterious powers, and so much more. Hours and hours of listening pleasure. Learn from the meditations on the site. Really learn because they're real and they're valuable. Subscribe to unknowncountry.com right now. Go to unknowncountry.com. Click on the subscribe tab. We are running very low on new subscribers now, and that should not be. It should not be happening. So you do it. You go there and you do it today. We're talking to Seven Bremner, her new book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. Her website, merlenasevenbremner.com. Uh, do not miss this website. It is it's of itself an alchemical journey, and uh, or rather a journey into real alchemical energy. And the book is even more so because it enables you to join intellect, with the inner power of your being 
in some very extraordinary ways. And because when you have understanding, you bring something more of yourself to the story. And this book offers real understanding. It's, it's the genuine article. All right, here we are. How do we, and you can tell, I think, that I'm, what I'm doing here is taking an alchemical journey in, in the world of the society. So we're, in, we're at the moment of Negredo. And now, what do we do to next? What is the next step in alchemy after you have, a, you, you reach Negredo, then what? Well, when you're in the Negredo, it can feel like it's never going to end. You know, it can just feel like the forces of the elements are assailing you and assailing your mind, you know, with um, anxiety and fears and worries and depression or just um, apathy even, you know. Um, well, apathy is the is the uh, this the byword of this era that's why people are so they you know they are apathetic they're incredibly apathetic here you have a situation where the planets uh in the environment is clearly collapsing around our ears and you know they talk about it on the news like it was a news story just another news story but it's not another news story it's a new life beginning and a new death and a death unfolding as well. So, in the in the um, in the uh, transformations of alchemy, we go from we go we start with Negredo and we go to um, what's the next one? Uh, um, Albedo. Al yeah. Okay, that's right. See, you're the alchemist. I'm, I'm only here asking questions. Uh, tell us about albedo and what it is. Well, the albedo, if we can surrender, if we can um, surrender to the negredo and accept it and stop fighting against it or trying to escape it, then that's when that sort of grace comes in or a light on the horizon. So if the negredo is the dark night of the soul, the albedo is that first glimmer of light that's that lets you know that the night is coming to an end, that it's not gonna last forever. And it opens up new possibilities. And where um, Saturn is very constrictive and earthy and the Negredo is very constrictive and earthy and cold and dry, the Albedo is a more lunar process and also more related to Jupiter as this sort of um, liberating force that comes in and frees us from that um, constraint. And if we think about the moon and water and the unconscious and this sort of fluid reality where the inner and the outer worlds merge together and symbols take on a very potent meaning. And um, we may be more receptive to messages from um, spiritual beings or from our own unconscious. Um, it's a more open, fluid state of receptivity. And with that, um, all of the sort of structures and restrictions and limiting beliefs 
that we may have been confronting in the previous phase and feeling very, um, you know, burdened by, these can suddenly start to be dissolved and broken down and purified. So if we think about this just in terms of like our core beliefs or limiting beliefs, um, this is the time when we're sort of like letting them go and saying, I wanna build something new. And so like, what's wrong with that limiting belief that I was holding? Why, why doesn't it work anymore? And how is it holding me back? And kind of um, looking at things in a deeper way and allowing a sort of divine illumination to guide us into restructuring these beliefs and mental constructs that we have about ourselves and about the world, um, about the way things are supposed to be and what's possible. So the albedo is a really beautiful time, um, beautiful phase of the process. It can be very inspired, um, also very surreal. And there's also the possibility that in this stage of the process, one kind of goes a little too far into that great sea of the unconscious and loses their connection to dry land. And so I talk about this a lot in the book because I think it's important um, that we wanna be able to go into these fluid states of awareness to receive inspiration, but we need to be able to stay grounded. And I think having some sort of physical practice, whether that's um, a physical practice with the body or meditation or um, artwork or whatever it is that connects you to this consensus reality, you know, to have something like that, um, that you can always come back to. You know, it's very interesting that working with who I work with, and I have to say, I don't know who I work with, just that they're here uh, because they, they, there are so many manifestations, physical manifestations, and I don't actually know who it is. I can't name them. It could be my, it could be Anne. It could all be Anne. For all I know, it could all be someone, something else. But in any case, it has been very, very interested in things like walking meditations lately. I got, to, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm no cameraman. I'm horrible with any kind of machine, but I got a GoPro camera for the purpose of doing walking and recording walking meditations. And uh, there are beautiful places to do that around here where I live. And let me ask you this, what about meditation as a practice of, as, as, we, uh, uh, as we try to draw albedo into our personal lives? which is what we have to do in order to survive what's going to happen here, because this place is going to go bonkers in the next few years. You're, you're liable to have, even in the Western world, things like food anxiety. And, you know, you think things are crazy now. You, 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 you deprive a, a, a society armed to the teeth, which ours is, of food, and you're going to see crazy like you never saw crazy before. So these are serious times and we need to under, those of us who are on this path need to understand when we're really up against it, what do we, how do we open ourselves in the right way? And so 
how do we find albedo under the most dark of circumstances? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right on the mark there with meditation. We need a way to create that space within ourselves to allow for greater possibilities to exist. If we can't get away from the noise and the constant distraction, um, we're not going to be able to hear that voice of wisdom that exists within all of us. Whether that comes to us in the form of a, a spiritual being or someone from, you know, beyond this life um, or just a voice within us or in the messages of birds or in a dream, however that comes to us, um, we need to be listening for it, you know? And if we're clogging our organs of reception with all of this noise and chatter and, you know, Twitter and Instagram and scrolling and the news and, you know, messages on six different apps and people being able to access you from all parts of the world. And, you know, there's so much that we have to work against right now in order to access that stillness. So having some kind of practice that allows you to be still, whether that's simply walking outside in nature or meditating or doing ritual magic or having an alchemical practice or creating art, just something to slow things down where you can set a boundary and say, you know what, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna put my phone down and I'm gonna go outside and I'm just gonna put my feet on the earth and just be, you know? I think that's really the key and everything in our culture right now in this world is working against that. Sure so is. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of discipline just to be able to say, I'm putting this thing down. I don't need access to all the information in the world at every single moment of my day. You know, people don't need access to me at every single moment of my day, you know, to be able to set boundaries for that space. You know, um, there there is a, we have a guest, I believe he's coming on Dreamland soon, uh, called Richard Sklove, who has written an incredibly powerful book called Escaping Maya's Palace. And of course, folks, for the, those of you who don't know what Maya's Palace is, in the, the greatest single esoteric document ever created is the Mahabharata, uh, the great document of, 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 of Indian literature that, uh, and in it, the Maya's palace is essentially, it's the ego. It's the palace of ego. And the whole Mahabharata is about what it is, how ego works and, uh, what, um, uh, basically how to escape it. And what he's done is he's modernized this and brought it into our le level of reality and life. So, but, and that's all very well and good, but uh, there is in alchemy, a much more practical methodology of finding one's own true self. And 
this has to do with these transformations. When you go beyond albedo, when you are, you have tasted the piece of albedo, you then move on into uh, citrinitas, solar inspiration. We're going to have a guy on this show soon, uh, probably in the fall, later in the fall, who's got an, uh, made some wild discoveries about the consciousness of stars. And uh, I would like you to talk about solar inspiration now, if you will. Well, in the Hermetic um, cosmology, the sun is essentially the highest of all the planets. It's, you know, saying planets as the traditional seven planets, um, the sun and moon being included in those. So the sun is that which dispenses light and it, through its rays, we receive the divine light of the source. So the sun is sort of like a mediator between us and that source light. And so through these rays of our star that everything in our solar system is revolving around, we receive these divine emanations from the source. And so also if we think about the sun um, in the esoteric anatomy of the body, in the Hindu tradition, the sun is at the crown chakra. And in the same way, we're receiving those divine emanations through that crown chakra, those cosmic effluences, you know, coming down through the crown where the thousand petaled lotus sits. And um, the sun is also sometimes depicted within the heart. And so I like to think of that as not contradictory, but that we, we do have a sun within us, within the heart. And that's where we can radiate out that light of the divine. Um, but we receive it through the crown. And so that's what I think about with solar inspiration. And in alchemy, the citrinitas is sort of a transitionary stage between the albedo, the whitening of the albedo and this lunar work, very watery lunar work of um, purification and um, inspiration and um, inner work. Um, the citrinitas transitions us into the final stage, which is the reddening, the rubedo. But in the citrinitas, the yellowing, um, we're receiving solar inspiration. So inspiration from the divine and also the illumination of the conscious mind and the ability to um, direct the conscious mind into the unconscious, into the deep layers of the self and illuminate the darkness and to be able to make sense of it. And this is the part where we get into integration and understanding and, um, you know, processes like coagulation where um, water might be evaporated from a substance and then it congeals into a more solid form. So we're kind of extracting the emotionality, extracting this fluid wateriness that we encountered in the albedo and allowing things to solidify and to take on a more fixed aspect um, a more structured aspect within our being. And so, yeah, I think of this as both an integration and also a maturation process. So another process, for example, would be digestion, uh, which is traditionally done um, with a vessel encased in dung because dung provides a very steady, consistent heat for um, this digestion to take place over a long period of time without it 
going too fast or too slow and without it burning or over consuming itself or whatever. Um, so digestion, like gestation in the womb, it's a process that requires a certain amount of time to unfold. And also, you know, a relinquishing of control of that process and just allowing it to unfold in its own time. And yeah. Before we go on in the third half hour, we're going to be talking uh, about, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, yeah. in the third half hour, we're going to be talking about rubedo and uh, things like projecting the astral body and opening the doors to the imaginal realm. But right now, I want to circle back into the darkness again, but in a new way, uh, because it, it, let's let's talk about uh, alchemy, demonism, and demonism in pursuit of the great work, because we need to we need to understand this remarkable statement of Anne's about the using basically working in the light and the dark, and there are things like uh, Heisman's view of Satan, which are about working with the dark side. And I know you know a lot about this. I, I sense that you do because I've seen it in your paintings. But I'm, I, I, I think in your uh, nonverbal area, you know a lot about it. I'm not sure that you can bring it into the verbal part, but you're so expertly verbal in this, I have a feeling I'll be surprised. So when we are dealing with this darkness that is within us. Uh, or, or, you know, we look at something like um, uh, Stuck's painting, Sin, which is basically a painting of a woman and this tremendous conflict between feminism, the feminine and the masculine in uh, the symbolist artists of that period of the early 19th, early 20th century. How do we find our way in this darkness? First of all, we have to be willing to look at it. That's you the know. perfect answer, of course. <laughs> because the natural tendency um, is to project it outwards. To say, yeah. you know, to look at the world around us and the people around us and say, oh, well, that person is selfish and those people are um, narrow-minded and that person is greedy, you know, to, to see all these negative things in the world around us and in other people and to be satisfied with that, you know, and that's the narrative. There's evil in the world and I'm on the good side, you know. That's a natural tendency. But when you start to self-reflect and you start to kind of consider things in a deeper way, it's you also start to ask yourself like, well, aren't I greedy? You know, aren't I selfish? Aren't I narrow-minded? Um, and you can start to see how you are in certain ways, you know? And so there's a process of accepting these negative qualities within yourself or the darkness within yourself. And I think there's even more like deeper, more primal layers of evil within the self. And um, that 
it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's these powerful forces within us, but we need to be able to um, have some semblance of control over them. We don't want them to take over so that we're doing evil things in the world, right? But at the same time, we need to acknowledge them and accept them and integrate them. And that just takes a lot of self-reflective work. And, you know, for me, working with dreams is one way that I really get in touch with those parts of myself because those um, kind of deeper evil tendencies or animalistic instinctual parts of myself tend to express themselves in dream imagery. Um, and so when those come up, I can sort of start to look at them in a symbolic way and understand how they relate to maybe unconscious behaviors that I'm engaging in, in my waking life. Um, and I talk about all this in a very psychological way because my early introduction to alchemy was through Carl Jung, but um, I don't see all of this as just happening in the limited conception of the mind that we have in, in this day and age. The mind being the, um, you know, the animated essence of everything that is, that everything is connected through this divine mind and that it's bigger than just what's within our, our little egoic personality. Um, so anyway, I think the first step is really just being willing to look at these parts of ourselves and accept that we all have um, negative, dark compulsions within us. And it's not about denying them and projecting them outwards. It's about accepting them and integrating them and giving them a positive, useful role in our existence. Well, it is doable also. It's very doable in, in, in the real world of your inner life. Uh, you've mentioned working with dreams a number of times. And this is very valuable material because people are asking themselves, yes, look at it, but then what, how do I work with it? What do I do? I see these things in myself. I see my darkness. Now what? And the answer comes in working with dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I've been writing down my dreams since I was 16. So I've got just loads and loads of journals of dreams. Um, but I've, over the years, it's been just the most valuable practice because it allows me to, you know, have this ongoing storyline that isn't related to my daily life, but that's really meaningful for my daily life. And I've had many different types of recurring dreams where I can see um, a process unfolding over years and the way that the dream changes uh, reflects changes in my waking life, you know? Um, so there's a lot of value I find to simply just recording your dreams and observing what's happening in them, even beyond trying to interpret them, like just having an awareness of them. But then when you get into interpretation, it can get really interesting. And, you know, it's, I think the real work comes in when you start to engage with your dreams, where you maybe interpret a dream, you get a general sense of what it means and a general message from it of like something that you should be doing or changing or thinking about or 
something, you know, for you to act on. And then you integrate it into your daily life and you bring it into your waking world, your conscious reality. Um, and dreams can reveal things about ourselves that we're not able to see with the waking mind, with the solar consciousness. Because... Uh yeah. Now, yeah. When you say the solar consciousness, that means that's the part of us that's sort of in the light of conscious of, of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And the other yeah. one, the other part of it is what called, called what? Like the lunar. The lunar consciousness. Lunar yeah. The lunar that's consciousness. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in psychological terms, the conscious and unconscious. And right. so, yeah, the symbols tend to be very strange, you know, very surreal, very hard to decipher and understand, um, yeah. ridiculous even, or terrifying. And it can be so strange that we just don't even want to deal with it, you know? Or have you could, ever, ever painted any of them uh, from your own painting? I bet you have. I thought you might have painted. Yeah. 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 Usually um, there'll be like a prominent symbol from a dream. And then I'll it'll evolve um, over time as I kind of unpack what the symbol means and what the dream means. And then the dream or the painting itself will be more of like a synthesis of my understanding than a direct representation of the dream. Do you sell prints as well as paintings? I do, yeah. Most of my paintings are available as prints. Oh, wow. Well, I'm definitely going to get some, some of those because I want them in this house. Oh, um, I wish I could afford the paintings, actually, but um, I'm, unfortunately, people always think of Whitley Strieber, a big liar. He made a lot of money. But when you tell the truth, you generally don't make a lot of money, and that's exactly <laughs> where I am. But I get along. I'm, I'm, not, I'm very grateful for what I have in my life and in the, in what I've been given in the world. One of the visitors early on said to me, you're the luckiest of the lucky, and I thought, is this insane? Is an individual completely insane? It turned out to be true. And uh, uh, being where I am is, I'm so grateful. And I'm so grateful to have you on this show too, because it's a chance for all of us to learn something from, frankly, and I don't embarrass you, but from a master. Uh, she said a number of things over the course of this conversation, which are indications of the ease of what I call the ease of mastery, which Anne also had when I was asking about uh, the, the how we deal with the, the, the hurly-burly and negativity of life all around us. There were two words, she said, Seven said, slow down. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then when I was, we were deep in in the dark and looking at the dark within us i i, I ex, ex, facing the darkness and she i said what do we do with this darkness within us and her answer was simple three words look at it those are very very important concepts and i want to leave you with them those on the free side and we're going to go now for, for the other, for the, those on the subscriber side, into the spiritual quality of words, the ricetto and the marriage 
of the Philosopher's Stone, and we're going to go into, just touch on some of the practical aspects of how these inner movements become something very, very real. So Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. Visit Marlena Seven Bremner on the internet, and I strongly advise you to get some of this art and these books into your life because there's not many people who come along like this. This is a truly unique experience. And the second I saw her first book, I thought, my God, how incredible. And so I'm so glad you're here. And uh, Free Dream Limits, we'll see you next week. And thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.